Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. And uh, last week we read verses 1 through 13, where we had seen Jesus feeding the 4,000. And this is just right on the heels of that. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us. Lord, this morning we ask that you would help us uh, to, to hear your word. Lord, to hear your word and be instructed by it. But Lord, mostly that we would, through your word, come to know you better. That we would come to trust your heart. To trust your word. To trust your love for your people. God, that, uh, that as we do so, we would become, by your word and by your spirit, people who are more and more the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 14. Says, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. When they they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of the discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Turning to our New Testament reading from Galatians chapter 6. Verses 1 through 18, which is the whole of chapter 6. Paul finishes his letter to the church in Galatia this way. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please, the fle- to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit From the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use that I write to you with my own hand? Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. Well, as we come to our uh, sermon text this morning, this is it's kind of a moment. This is the very end of the book of Genesis, which we have been actually working our way through for quite some time. And, and today is the end. And it's um, the way that the book ends, it is a fitting conclusion to the book. And it's the kind of thing where you could read through the whole book of Genesis just as a book standalone by itself and go, all right, there you go. There's the story. Except that the way it ends is a little weird too. On the one hand, it's a fitting conclusion. On the other hand, it's kind of like there's a question mark that's still hanging out there. I mentioned last week when we were looking at... um, how death is uh, often regarded as something natural in our world, and yet there's kind of nothing more unnatural about it when you look at it from how God originally created everything. And so it talked about the song where it says, um, if nature is red in tooth and claw, then it seems to me that she's the outlaw. And then the next line, it's so good, says, um, because every death is a question mark, at the end of the book of a beating heart. And so you think about like a, a book or you think about a movie, maybe you've seen these before, where you get to the end and it says the end and it prints the end, question mark? <laughs> and every time that question mark is there, you know what that means. And it means it's not a period and it means it's not the end. <laughs> the end, question mark, means... There's more to come. And that is more how the book of Genesis ends, is, uh, yes, there will be a period there, and yet there's sort of this implied. It's not all, though, is there? You'll see what I mean. Here we go. This is Genesis um, chapter 50, starting in verse 15 and going on to the end. This is uh, when Joseph and his brothers had been in Egypt for a while, and their dad had uh, had died, and uh, and of course Jacob's. Well, we'll we'll read it. You we'll catch up. It says when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, "What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him?" So they sent word to Joseph saying, "Your father left these instructions before he died." This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Period. The end. That's the way the book ends. With death in a coffin, in Egypt. And it kind of makes a fitting conclusion, doesn't it? You have this whole book where it started with God creating everything good, and then uh, what you find, though, is that he gives people this choice between trusting him and having life with him or not trusting him and having death uh, and being outside of the place uh, where they were to have fellowship with him. And people chose death. And people chose exile. And so what we see is that as Adam and Eve leave the garden, then we see the same story kind of replayed again and again, even to this point. We see this cycle of death. We were reading for the children's sermon about uh, Noah and the flood. And if you remember that story, how it talks about how before the flood, Every uh, inclination of the human heart was, was only evil all the time, right? And then you get after the flood, and does it fix anything? No, after the flood, it says the same thing. It's still only evil all the time. And so we still have uh, this problem of sin that just continues and continues and continues. And so even though God created everything good at the beginning, even though there's this kind of uh, promise of life, yet what we see is again and again and again, Death, death, death. And so then you get to the end of the book, and what do you get? The people are outside the land that God promised to them. And Joseph, I mean, the grandson, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so I guess great-grandson of Abraham, is Joseph is dead in a coffin in Egypt. The end. Y'all ready to go home now? (laughs) <laughs> on the one hand, I'm sure you are, but, but no, you don't want the story to end there, do you? This is not the good news of the gospel. This is the, the first half of the verse in Romans uh, 6, where the wages of sin is death. And that's what we see here. As we've walked all the way through this, we see the wages of sin is death. And that is what his people have done, and that, and that is what people get. On the one hand. But that's not the end of uh, the story. It's not the end of Romans 6.23. The second half of that is, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that has been hinted at all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That one day someone would come to deal with this problem of sin and death once and for all. 
But by the end of the book of Genesis, we don't see that. But what we do see are still hints of that. We see hints that the uh, story is not over, that these promises that God have made, though they have not uh, been fulfilled yet, will be fulfilled. And you see this in a couple places. One of these is when Joseph does something similar to what Jacob did we saw last week. Uh, Jacob said, hey, bury me in the land that God promised to Abraham. I want to be connected with that land even after I'm dead. Because I believe that God is going to be faithful to the promises he made all that time back. Joseph, something similar. Here he says, uh, like, you, you don't need to go do the big funeral in Egypt or in Canaan right now. Go ahead and um, <laughs> kind of bury me here. But... He says, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land. And so uh, then again in verse 25, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So he's saying, even after I have died, even uh, after you've had all the funerals here in Egypt, who knows how long it will be before God takes you back to the promised land? Don't know. But we do know that God is going to be faithful to his promise, that he will uh, take you back to that land. And when you do, take my bones too. And this is a way of uh, Joseph even looking forward to God being faithful to the promises that he has made. And so there is still hope at the end of the story, that there is still more to come, but there's not just There is death, but there's also hope. There's also grace and forgiveness and mercy. Did you see that in there? That what happened at the beginning of this that we're reading is Jacob had died, and the brothers then come to Joseph afraid. And they come to him afraid because of what had happened many, many years earlier when they had been jealous of Joseph, and so they had uh, sold him as a slave in Egypt. That's how they all ended up in Egypt, right? They had been in the land of Canaan. They had been where they had, uh, where God had promised them uh, they would be, but they got jealous of Joseph. They sell him as a slave in Egypt, get rid of him, make a little money on the side. Now he's not going to be their father's favorite anymore. They miscalculated every step of the way. Their plan became just a huge mess. It all blew up in their face, and it seemed like it just really wasn't good for anybody. However, then Joseph goes and is a, uh, a slave in Egypt. He ends up in prison in Egypt, wrongly accused. But then ends up uh, God raising him through the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, raises him as second in command in all of Egypt. And the dream that God had given Pharaoh was actually letting him know what was going to happen with uh, there being lots of crops for uh, seven years and then not enough food to go around for seven years. And so uh, he puts Joseph in charge of that whole program of how people from all around, not just Egypt, but all around, would be able to have enough to eat during the years when there's not enough food. 
This is how uh, Joseph's brothers end up in Egypt because they don't have enough food. They come there. They don't recognize him. There's this whole back and forth as he wants to see if they are still the same kind of people as the ones who were putting themselves first back in the day. And now he finds that, no, they're not. They're the kind of people now who are willing to lay down their lives for uh, one of their own brothers, even the one who is now their father's favorite. And so uh, Joseph then had revealed who he was. There was this big reconciliation moment. It was beautiful, and everybody seemed to be living happily ever after. However, in this moment, Jacob dies, and the brothers go, what if Joseph was just playing nice to make Dad happy? What if he didn't really forgive us? And he was just pretending while dad was around, but now that he's gone, there's no one to stop him from taking out his revenge on us. And so they get scared and they send this message to Joseph and say, um, you know, <laughs> what our dad said before he died actually was uh, that you should forgive us. And that's, uh, I think that would be a good idea. And did you hear what, how Joseph responded when he heard that message? That Joseph wept. And he wept, I believe, because after all this time, all this time that he had forgiven them, that he had extended grace and mercy and forgiveness, that they would be reconciled and that the, uh, the two groups would be one again, he realized they'd never really received that forgiveness. That they still believed that he was holding it against them secretly. He wasn't. And so he says to them when they come in and they throw themselves before him and they say, we are your slaves. No, you're not. You're my brothers. I thought we'd been over this. And so he says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So here we have the other way that this book ends, because it doesn't just end with death that comes from uh, sin. It comes also with this, this look at what can also come as a result of sin. And that is there can be redemption. There can be restoration. There is hope that death doesn't win in the end. And so we see this where Joseph says, you know, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. In the Hebrew, the way, this word, it, it, the way it's worded is kind of like, um, you planned it for evil to me, or you planned it for evil against me, but God planned it for good. And the word that is... Uh, used for evil and good there. That's raw for evil and tov for good. Those show up all the time. And where they start showing up, it, together anyway, is all the way back at the beginning of Genesis when we're introduced to the two trees in the Garden of Eden. And this is in chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were 
pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra, of good and evil. And we see these continue to show up, and here we have it again, where uh, Joseph says, you intended this for evil. You planned this for evil. You, as it says in NIV, you, in, uh, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And this is a really hard concept to wrap our heads around. Because we look at the things that, uh, I mean, we look at what the brothers did. And we go, okay, so was Joseph saying, well, that really what they did was good after all? Like they thought it was bad, but it wasn't really bad. It was actually good when you look at it from the right angle. No, it was wrong. They should not have done that. It was evil. This is the same kind of thing that we see when we look at, um, at Judas and Jesus. When we look at the actions of Pilate and we look at these things and we say, well, you know, but Jesus needed to go to the cross, so it was good that they did that, right? No, it was not good that they did that. <laughs> Those were evil actions. And yet, what we see throughout the whole of the story, not just in Genesis, but the whole of the story, is that uh, while we do see people continue to do things that are evil, we continue to see people do things that are wrong and that should not be done, None of that can overcome what God is doing in his creation for good. And that no matter how evil the evil is, it is still evil, but it doesn't win. That when we, um, and that is one of the things we will see is we're, we're going to kind of move from here uh, in a couple of weeks to the other end of the Bible and go all the way to Revelation and we will see how evil does not win and how it looks like it will win an awful lot of the time, but it doesn't win. And that, uh, and this is one of those where we, uh, we live now much like Joseph was living then in faith that God knows what he's doing, that he does work things for good. And in Joseph's situation, like he had gotten to see a part of that. And sometimes we do get to see that. You may have personally lived through something where at the time you're like, this is horrible. And then later on down the road, you look back on that and you're like, that was horrible. But I also see how God has used that for something good. You also may have lived through things where you say that is horrible as you're going through it. And years down the road, you look back and you go, that is still horrible. And I have no idea how that ever could be used for anything good. There's that too. Sometimes we get an answer, sometimes we don't. We've been on Wednesday night reading through the book of Job. He never gets an answer. He goes through some horrible things. And a big, uh, most of the book is him questioning why, why, why. Is he experiencing what he's going through? And God never tells him. And you get to the very end of the book and God actually does show up and he does 
answer him, but the answer he gives them is, is uh, basically, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the perspective you have on my entire creation is so small. All you're seeing is this one little bitty part of the whole thing. And you cannot possibly understand all that is going on. What I'm asking you to do is trust the one who put all of this together, that I do know what I'm doing. And so with Joseph, we see that kind of thing. That Joseph gets to see a little bit of it. And then he gets to see that, uh, that the evil that his brothers plan doesn't win. And because of that, he's able to offer them genuine forgiveness. He's able to have genuine reconciliation with them. There can be a redemption even of the evil that they intended for him. That's pretty amazing. And all of this is the end of the first book of the whole Bible. And so the, uh, the end of the book of Genesis, as I say, you can read it just as that book and, and be done. But I think you can see that there's this question mark at the end. The end? Death? Outside of the promised land? Is that really how the story ends? Well, I don't think so. And as you move forward, uh, what, we, what we see, that death does not win. That evil does not win. And, um, and of course, we see this most in... Um, in Jesus at the cross when it really looks like evil is going to win and, uh, and yet have the resurrection where that, of course, displays that evil does not win and death does not win, that that is, uh, that is the good news of the gospel, is that in Jesus, death has been defeated, that evil has been, uh, the power of evil has been undone, and that in Jesus there is uh, there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness, and there is life and hope, redemption, resurrection. I think of some illustrations with this idea of evil not getting the last word, of not having the victory, of not winning. And there's a, a song by Luke Spihar where he uh, looks at the idea of playing chess against a master and it's like every move that you make you're free to choose which moves you make but you're not going to outsmart that guy (laughs) and i think the same thing if you imagine um some really arrogant um chess player who's kind of a, a beginner but they think they know it all because you know like they were able to beat a child, and you're like, hey, I don't know how good you really are, though. And then they go up against some chess master, and they're like, oh, yeah, watch how I do this. That's kind of how it seems with um, with what the devil is doing in everything, of all this arrogant boasting. I was like, you have no chance. Yeah, you can make that move, and it, oh, I might look at that and say, I have no idea how he's going to get out of it, but the the master doesn't let that happen unless he knows how he's still going to get the victory. And this is um, what we see 
with, uh, with Jesus at the cross. As it seems like sure defeat. And yet, even in what seems like sure defeat, that is actually the defeat of evil. And it is the victory of God. And when we start looking at it like this, we might be tempted. And I'm going to go one more place here. We might be tempted to think, well, if it is, you know, people are free to choose evil, and it is, uh, but that evil can still be undone and that God still wins in the end. And, and actually, the more evil that he overcomes, the greater, you know, he appears to be and like the more he's glorified. And so that's what um, Paul in the book of Romans kind of runs into and saying, you know, it's, uh, in 5.20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might, re- might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, if it is the evil things that are done that highlight how great God is, well, maybe we should just go ahead and do more evil things. I mean, after all, the evil's not going to win in the end anyway, so we might as well go ahead and do that. And it'll just make God look greater, right? Wrong. <laughs> Paul says, what should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And uh, oh, I just want to read you the rest of the Romans. Okay, we're not going to do that. But what Paul is saying is that uh, what, the, what the brothers had intended for evil, God had intended for good, that he is able to bring redemption and grace and forgiveness uh, even through what they had done. That as those who receive that kind of grace and forgiveness from God, our job now is not to add more problem and evil into the world. Our job is actually to be those who are like Joseph, extending the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God to others. Joseph's brothers come to him and they are afraid that he's going to get even with them. And Joseph's response is, not going to happen. Don't be afraid. In fact, I'm going to provide for you. You who did me wrong, I'm going to provide for you and for your children. And says, and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And when we think about Joseph as the one pointing us to Jesus, we think about ourselves in the position of the brothers. That's what we did the first time they came together. And we see it again here. What does Jesus say to us when we when he says we are forgiven and then we go, I bet he still holds my sin against me though. I bet he does because I deserve horrible things. And I think like, Je- like Joseph, he weeps. When we continue carrying around the guilt of the sin that he has already told us he has forgiven. And he tells us, don't be afraid. I will provide for you. You who did me wrong, I will provide for you and for your children. And he speaks to us 
and reassures us and speaks kindly to us. And then as those who have received it, we're to be those who extend this to others. So that in a world that is, looks a lot like Genesis, where there's an awful lot of sin and death, that we would be those who are the light of the world. That we are those who are reflecting the light of Jesus into the world as we extend grace and forgiveness and hope and life in this world of sin and death. What does that look like? That means when there are those who have done us wrong, we can follow the way of the world and make sure that we try to get even. That we try to teach them a lesson of how they can't treat us like that. They can't do that to us. Make them pay. That kind of thing. It's the way of the world. It's what everybody does. Or, we can be those who follow a different king in a different way and who extend grace and forgiveness, who, who seek reconciliation, who bless those who curse us, pray for those who persecute us, do good to those who hate us, and speak kindly to them, trusting that God is the one who will deal with evil who doesn't call evil good, continues to call it evil, but has a plan for redemption and has a plan uh, for restoration and to work all things one day for good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.